Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live and nationwide. I'm Burke Allen in our studios in Washington, D.C., which I must confess continue to be my kitchen table because I can't actually get into our studio. Everything's still pretty locked down here because of the pandemic. It's slowly but surely coming back to normal. Our guest today is Mitch McCracken. Mitch and I are old buddies. We worked together many years ago in Las Vegas, but Mitch has always really been a Memphis guy and a Memphis music guy. And we're going to talk to Mitch about Memphis music. The podcast is brought to you by our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a speaker or if you're a meeting planner, get together at the Speaker Match virtual marketplace and find one another, whether it's for an online speaking event or an in-person conference coming up sometime in the future. Check out SpeakerMatch.com. So for the better part of the last four decades, Mitch McCracken has been a curator and one of the biggest fans of Memphis music. And what an incredible body of work that is. Uh, And he's been around it for an awful long time, starting off in broadcasting there in in Memphis and working in broadcasting all over the country. But he's back home now. Mitch McCracken, our guest today. Mitch, let's rewind all the way back to your earliest memories of Memphis music. What do you remember as a kid that, that got you interested to begin with? Well, of course, uh, you know, I was, I was born in the early fifties. So Elvis, sure. uh, was, uh, what made me become aware, uh, of Memphis fame all over the world. Um, I did not know for a long time that people outside of Memphis knew about Elvis. <laughs> you thought he was just a Memphis thing, huh? Yeah, yeah, because you, you know there were Elvis sightings all over town, and it was it was an exciting time to be uh, growing up and and to see people like uh, Elvis and and Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Carl Perkins to a to a lesser extent, but but still out there and and making. Uh, Memphis music and uh, and of course, you know Memphis. When when people talk about Memphis music, they may be talking about different sounds uh, because some people talk about Memphis music as the rockabilly sound. Others uh, consider Memphis music the stack sound or or Willie Mitchell. Um, and at Royal Studios, um, he influenced a lot of people. Um, but uh, there was a lot of of uh, music going on in, across the river at West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, that's where a lot of the uh, uh, blues artists came up. So um, yeah, I got I got interested in it at an early age and it just never subsides you know it's there's there's people now making really great music in memphis unfortunately it it's not getting out like it used to mitch mccracken is our guest today on the big time talker podcast he is the memphis music guy and if you've never been to that city and you've never walked down beale street and and heard all the live music that's coming from all those clubs or or you may not even be familiar with the, the picture of this guy, uh, or I should say statue of this guy, who's holding uh, a horn in his hand. 
W.C. Handy, who's kind of a big deal in music, uh, and and he's a Memphis guy. Tell us about W.C. Handy. Yeah, W.C. Handy is the originator of the Memphis sound. Um, and he, um, I mean, he, it, in his time, he was as, as big as Elvis was. Uh, and influenced a lot of people in the uh, Mississippi Delta, um, who because there's an awful uh, a close relationship between jazz and blues, and so that's what uh, and and actually the 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 blues actually uh, was born in Mississippi and gravitated north to uh, to Memphis and. Memphis seemed to be the hub of of all of those sounds. You know, it's it's interesting, Mitch, how you talk about it being sort of a regional hub for music, and and it continues on to this day. I was in Memphis um, several years ago, and uh, I was down there just uh, for several days, and and went to Stacks, and 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 of course went to Graceland to to pay my respects to the king. And I was staying at, at a hotel, a very famous hotel there in Memphis called the Peabody. And this happened to be, I just happened to be there when Hurricane Katrina was hitting in New Orleans. And I'm in the lobby of the Peabody, and pretty soon I see uh, a lot of familiar faces uh, at the reception desk. And the Neville brothers and their families had all decamped from New Orleans and come to Memphis to ride that storm out at the Peabody Hotel. So it's almost as if in Memphis, even if you wanted to get away from the music, you couldn't. And and I wonder if that's what drove you as a young guy to get involved in, in radio and in music radio in Memphis because, you know, you can't deny the music there. Did the music draw you to radio or was it something else? No, it, it was absolutely the music. Uh, it was the top 40 of the late 60s. Um, that got me, uh, hooked me, uh, and I decided in the ninth grade uh, that I wanted to be a disc jockey, and I was fortunate enough to have a drama teacher um, who saw that in me and and helped me uh, gear up, and I got my first job um, right out of high school uh, at the the third FM station in the country to go rock on FM. Is that so, right? Wow. Yeah. So I went from a completely free format um, uh, to uh, what we're doing now with uh, uh, cards and and, and uh, uh, computers, uh, hard drives. Uh, you know, it's not like you can pick uh, a record album up and, and play a song off of it. Uh, it has to be in in the computer in order for you to play it. So you were there in radio in, in those early, very creative days when an artist could literally show up, uh, sort of like in the movie Coal Miner's Daughter, when Loretta Lynn would show up with a record and the DJ would play it. You were able to do that. Um, and I want to ask you about some specific artists that – that are part of the Memphis Sound, and, and some of them I'm sure you have had interactions with, and maybe some of them you haven't, but but certainly you're a fan. And and I want to start with uh, with the band Big Star because they 
you know, Alex Chilton was the lead singer of Big Star, and, and they were sort of this band that everybody thought would be huge and phenomenally successful, and and they were not huge and commercially phenomenally successful, but pretty much every 70s and 80s rock band lists them as an influence. Talk to me about Big Star. Oh, yeah. Well, Big Star, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to um, interview John Fry um, uh, about a year or so before he passed away. And, of course, he was uh, behind uh, Big Star uh, owning Ardent uh, recording studios. Uh, where they recorded, and he was involved with uh, with Alex when he was in the box tops, and uh, he was a real promoter of of Big Star, and was very surprised um, at the the lack of record sales that they got. Um, but you know they they got a cult following that is good that started then and is still going today. Uh, people really love Big Star and love their music. They were uh, way ahead of their time, which, which is what the problem was, uh, in my opinion, uh, as far as the record sales. Uh, they they were probably five to ten years ahead in in the music sound. Um, and, and that hurt the, the record sales. If you're not familiar with Big Star, you're certainly familiar with one of their songs. Their song is the theme to that 70s show, and Cheap Trick uh, performed it for the 70s show, but they've always acknowledged that Big Star was a huge influence on that band. What about the right Reverend Al Green, who I understand still preaches most Sunday mornings at a church there in Memphis? Tell me about the Al Green sound and, and black music in Memphis. Well, I think um, one of the best quotes I ever heard from rock music came from Willie Mitchell, um, and he was talking to Al Green, and he said, don't imitate anybody. Be the best Al Green you can be. And because Al Green was trying to sound like Otis Redding or, or you know, any of the other uh, big-name R&B artists of the time, and he had such a unique sound on his own. So that's what uh, Willie Mitchell preached to him. And uh, he is uh, he was one of the guys that, that you would see around town uh, playing at different clubs and be able to walk up and, and talk to the man. And that's what I thought was so cool about living in Memphis is, is you could just go out in town and see people uh, like Al Green. Um, but his, uh, his sound has been appreciated from the time he first stepped into a recording studio until today uh, because he gets so much respect from uh, people who are coming up now that, that he influenced uh, as when they were uh, very young. But... But he is, uh, uh, he's still around town, and you still see him every now and again. But uh, it, that was so cool, being able to, to just go out at, uh, to clubs and, and to be able to meet people like Al Green or, or Albert King, uh, 
who was uh, around a lot. Uh, there was a story about Billy Joel coming to town, um, and he went to the, uh, he was staying at the Peabody Hotel. Okay. And Albert King was playing in the lounge, and Billy Joel was out on Second uh, or Third Street, Second uh, Street, I believe, and he was trying to flag people in to the Hotel Peabody parking lot. <laughs> and he's going, Albert King's playing for free. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and they're like, but you're Billy Joel. And he said, yeah, but he's Albert King. And uh, so that was, you know, that was always cool was was when you get rock stars um, acknowledging uh, people who are playing around Memphis. And the people of Memphis don't appreciate uh, the Memphis sound as much as people in Europe or people from outside of Memphis. Yeah, I guess it could be a bigger deal outside because to you or to the folks that live there, this is just what happens in the – downtown hotel on an average Saturday night. And it's just amazing. Um, one of the things that I've always thought was fascinating, and you touched on this earlier, is that not only did you have, you know, one amazing studio there that cranked out dozens of hits in Stax records, but a decade before that, you had another studio in town that was just seminal in the birthplace of, of rock and roll. And that's the Sun Record Studio, which, uh, you know, is, is now open for tours and people can get in there and, and actually stand on the spot where Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins, all those folks recorded uh, their songs. And, and that studio was a brainchild of, of Sam Phillips, who discovered so many major talents. I wonder if at any point in your life, did, did you ever rub shoulders with Sam Phillips? Believe it or not, I worked for Sam Phillips. I did not uh, know that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, uh, Sam Phillips is from Florence, Alabama, and he owns, uh, his family still owns uh, a radio station in, in Florence. Uh, and uh, the callers were WQLT. And um, I worked there, and you didn't really see Sam. Uh, around, but I walked out one uh, Sunday afternoon and uh, after doing my air shift and Sam was standing in the, the sales uh, office lobby and and I said, uh, good afternoon, Mr. Phillips. And he said, good afternoon, but it's Sam. And I said, okay. And I asked him the question, because I was 24 years old and stupid. <laughs> um, and, and, and so I asked him why he sold Elvis's contract for such a small amount of money. And he looks at me and he said, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I sat down and we talked. About. Um, Elvis and about why he sold that uh, the contract um, for such a small amount of money, which wasn't really a small amount of money at the time, right? Especially for an artist who had never had a hit, 
And uh, I really didn't realize uh, that Elvis hadn't had a national hit um, on Sun Records. He had local hits, but he, he had never had a national hit. And Sam told me that if he had stayed with Sun, he would have never had a million And I said, how can you say that with his talent? And he said, because in order to sell a million, you got to buy a million. Right. And I I didn't have the funds to do that. So, uh, and he was actually um, talking, uh, before he talked to RCA Records, he talked to Capitol Records and was considering an offer from them for $25,000. For Elvis's contract. Amazing. Just amazing. What about, uh, as we talk about uh, Elvis, other members of, of Elvis's inner circle, the, the Memphis Mafia, as they were called, what about that sort of mythology of Elvis and the Memphis Mafia uh, do we get wrong? What, what, what misconceptions do we have in the outside world about, about Elvis and, and that whole mystique of Elvis and Memphis? Well, you know, it, it wasn't like a, a, a drug culture, which is is what I think a lot of people perceive. Um, and they were they were like a, uh, a bunch of guys uh, in in high school uh, or in a pool hall somewhere. Uh, they were just a bunch of friends who who looked out for Elvis and. And there were different ones that were uh, in charge of different aspects of protecting him, uh, not, you know, from from the public, uh, from misconceptions. Um, George Klein, um, who was uh, a friend of Elvis from high school um, and uh, the top disc jockey in Memphis uh, for decades, um, he was. Uh, a very good friend of mine and uh, told me a lot of, of uh, Elvis stories uh, behind the scenes. Uh, but uh, there were just, they were good guys. Uh, they were uh, friendly, courteous uh, gentlemen, uh, but they were also incredibly talented in what they did. I spoke with Charlie McCoy a couple of weeks ago, the famous Nashville session musician and harmonica player who uh, played on, on many Elvis records. And uh, he had nothing but, but good things to say about Elvis. And he said that when Elvis would record with him, Elvis would, to a man would, would walk around to every musician, every engineer in the studio and thank him for being a part of, of the song. I wonder um, if, if Elvis and, and his uh, folks around him were generally well-liked in Memphis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, they were like, um, you know, the high school football team, you know? I mean, everybody, everybody liked them. There was uh, uh, very little negative uh, publicity about them. Um, they, of course, weren't a real mafia um, and the people, the people in Memphis realized that I'm not so sure about the people outside of Memphis, but I, uh, interviewed Reggie Young, um, who is a notorious, uh, session guitarist, uh, that started 
at American Studios. And uh, I'll make this real quick, but uh, the story about Elvis coming in uh, to American uh, to record in 1968, um, it was, well, I guess it was... Uh, January of 1969, by the time he got uh, to American, and he hadn't, Elvis hadn't had a hit in eight years. And so uh, Reggie Young told me, he said, well, you know, when he comes in here, I'm not bowing down to him. He's just, uh, he's just like any other singer. He hadn't had a hit in eight years. You know, I'm, I am not bowing down to this man. And so he said, a few minutes later, the back door opened, and Elvis walked in. Uh, it was January. He had his coat draped over his shoulders. He was wearing his sunglasses, and he took out one of those little bitty cigars and put it in his mouth. His entourage was with him, so five lighters came out. <laughs> and, and Reggie said he took about three steps back and said, Oh my God, it's the king. <laughs> <laughs> and he said that um, Chip's moment, um, who produced the session or engineered the session, um, they had a guy from uh, RCA uh, Records that was there, and they, they sent the entourage packing and just left Elvis and, uh, and an executive from RCA Records. And uh, Elvis had just recorded a song, and Chips was adjusting the equipment. And he looks at Elvis, and he goes, uh, Elvis, I believe you're a little flat on that last day. And uh, the, the RCA guy just about had a coronary. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> because that was their big star. And, and uh, Elvis said, well, let's do it again. I want to get it right. And uh, Reggie said that's the way he was during the whole session. He was he was polite. He he tried so hard, um, you know, to uh, to get everything right and and to do what was expected of him. So uh, he he was just a, a a real good human being. We're talking Memphis music and Elvis Presley with Mitch McCracken, who is sort of the, the guru of all Memphis music. I, uh, I saw an interview, Mitch, recently with Bruce Springsteen, and he said in 1975, uh, Springsteen and the E Street Band were playing a date in Memphis, and he and little Steven um, uh, got a, a taxi to go out and, and get uh, some food, and they asked the driver if they knew any place, any all-night diners that were open, and the, the taxi driver said, well, you know, there's a place over close to Graceland, over close to Elvis's house, and and they said, what? Really? you got to take us there. you got to take us to Graceland. And it's late at night. It's after their show. And they, they get to Graceland. And, of course, uh, you can see their lights on because Graceland is not that far from the front gates. You can see the house. And and Springsteen says, you know, i, I got to meet Elvis. And in 1975, Springsteen's a pretty big deal. He's you know on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and he's had some hits. So he, he scales Springsteen, scales the, the fence at Graceland. Little Steven's trying to talk him out of it, and he makes for the front door. Security steps out of the bushes and stops him and said, you know, uh, can I help you, sir? And he said, well, listen, I, I never like to, to say this kind of thing, but my name's Bruce Springsteen, and I've got a number one album, and I'm on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and I wonder if Elvis is there. And the security guard said, well, 
No, he's he's actually in Las Vegas. Uh, let me let me show you out. And that was as close <laughs> as, as Springsteen ever got to Elvis. But but you know, people have been making pilgrimages to to Memphis to be close to that music for so long. And and I know there are, are many many artists who have recorded there. The people will probably have no idea that that recorded their albums in Memphis. Absolutely, uh, a lot of people uh, don't realize. Well, as a matter of fact. Um, they had to bump an artist out of uh, of American um, to get Elvis in to do that session. Um, they had to postpone another artist, and and uh, he came in right behind Elvis, which was Neil Diamond, and uh, that's when he uh, recorded uh, "Sweet Caroline." So, so he recorded "Sweet Caroline" in Memphis. Yes, yes. And Dusty Springfield uh, recorded uh, Son of a Preacher Man in Memphis. Uh, ZZ Top recorded eight of their albums in Memphis at Ardent Recording Studios. Um, So there are a lot, there's a lot of music out there um, that people just don't know uh, was recorded in Memphis. And uh, in fact, I did a uh, I mentioned to you uh, uh, a week or so ago that I used to do a radio show that was called uh, That Memphis Music Radio Show, and I played uh, songs that people were unaware uh, was recorded in Memphis. Um, B.J. Thomas recorded a lot of his hits uh, in Memphis and uh, actually lived in Memphis. In fact, um he lived in an apartment complex uh, where my mother was the assistant manager. Um, so uh, we got to meet B.J. Thomas um, after he had had a couple of hits, and, and he played softball and football with the kids in the apartment complex. He was a real great, great guy, too. I'm not sure if you can quantify this, but I wonder if you have a thought on on why Memphis what is it about that city? I mean, in Nashville, obviously, you've got, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of the top session musicians in the world. You know, it's the home of country music. And in, in New York City, you've got so many great players. In Los Angeles, you know, much the same. But but you're in a middle-sized city in, in you know, the, the Mid-South area that's otherwise, you know, undistinguishable. So, so what is it about Memphis that that percolates all this incredible music that's become the soundtrack of our lives. Is it something you can quantify? No, you know, I, I, I've interviewed a lot of Memphis musicians, and I've asked uh, many of them uh, what their take is on what makes Memphis music different uh, from anywhere else. And that I've heard... Uh, the responses has been from um, anything from it's in the water <laughs> <laughs> uh, to the to the way that they uh, they play offbeat a little bit, um, but you can hear somebody like in Europe play a Memphis song, and it doesn't sound anything like what the record sounded like. Um, because there's just something about the Memphis musicians 
uh, and, and the Memphis singers, uh, I mean, uh, uh, I, I can't put my finger on what it is, but it is something. A good friend of mine named Don Nix, um, who uh, has played and produced a lot of uh, Memphis musicians, was asked by his friend George Harrison, to put a choir together for the concert of Bangladesh, and he wanted uh, Don Nix in the band uh, for the uh, concert of Bangladesh. So, uh, and and when Don met George, he had a whole he had he had a Beatle question he wanted to ask him, and when he was introduced, uh, he they said he was from Memphis. And Harrison said, started, do you know, do you know, do you know? And he, and Don knew them all, all, all the people that George asked him about. But George was so interested in Memphis music that Don never got a chance to ask him his Beatle question. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I mean, and, and, and George was, was heavily uh, influenced. Uh, by Memphis music, and in particular, Carl Perkins. He loved Carl Perkins. It's it's so varied. You know, we, you've got R&B, you've got WC Handy, you know, the, the early jazz. Some people call him the father jazz. Uh, and, and you've got the rock stuff, like Big Star or our mutual friend, Lee Jimmy Jameson from Survivor. You know, it's it's so different, all those different kinds of music. It's amazing that it's all come out of that city, you know, and I, I have to apologize to you. I didn't give our listeners uh, the chance to, to hear that you have not only a book, but a podcast of your own. That's all about Memphis music. So first of all, tell us about the book and, and it details your, your background in broadcasting. Tell you about the book. Yeah. Tell me about the book and the podcast. Okay. Well, uh, the book, um, would just kind of happen by accident. And, and I've had uh, people that have read it that uh, uh, compared it um, to um, oh, what's that, uh, the Tom Hanks uh, movie. Uh, oh, Forrest Gump. You're like the Forrest Gump of Memphis. Yeah, that, well, yeah, because, because it covers so much, because it starts when, when I was, you know, uh, stories about about me growing up and uh, and then uh, getting involved in radio. But uh, one of my uh, favorite chapters is the chapter about uh, uh, my magazine. I had a, a broadcasting magazine that's what you call a trade magazine that went to 1,300 radio stations rating records. And um, that magazine uh, was embezzled from me from uh, uh, Union Planners Bank and Stax Records. And so that is a, a very uh, interesting uh, chapter as well as my uh, 1974 interview with Jim Morrison. And if you remember, uh, Morrison died in 1971. So that's quite a, a trick for you to be able to pull that off, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, the, the other members of the Doors knew that there was an imposter but didn't know who he was, and I got to the bottom of it and, and found out who this who this guy was who was uh, the Jim Morrison imposter. 
So that, you know, stuff like, I did a great interview with Alice Cooper um, uh, that's that's in the book. And, and if you don't really know uh, anything about Alice Cooper, I mean, he is not uh, what you think he is. Uh, uh, he is a really intelligent um, human being, and, and he's just, he, he was a, he was a great guy and, and uh, really uh, fun to interview. So those those are the kind of stories uh, that are in the book. And um, I started well. I've been doing uh, interviews with Memphis musicians since the early '70s, but uh, the main uh, recordings that I still have. Um, are from the last few years, but, uh, you know, I, like I said, I interviewed, uh, Reggie Young, who was one of the studio musicians to move from Memphis to Nashville, uh, to do session work. Uh, there are, are many, uh, uh, Bobby Woods and, and Reggie Young and a few of the other guys that went uh, from America to Nashville. Um, when they do sessions in Nashville, now they'll, they'll say, hey, call the Memphis boys. <laughs> and so uh, they know that those are the guys uh, from the American session. Uh, but we uh, recently lost Reggie Young, and uh, uh, he and I had become very good friends. Uh, so I was really sorry uh, to hear about his passing, but... Um, did a great interview with him and and uh he uh, when i would interview somebody they would enjoy it because it was just like this it wasn't question and answer it was a conversation sure and and they enjoyed that and and, and at the end of reggie young's interview he said well tell me mitch have you interviewed dan penn and i said no i haven't and he said let me give you his home number yeah, i love that <laughs> So I, you know, a lot of those, a lot of the people I interviewed um, recommended me uh, to their friends. So, um, so I've acquired quite a, a few uh, interviews, uh, and I'm doing uh, right now. I, I've got two podcasts um, that I'm building. Uh, uh, one is is called uh, Memphis Music Interview. Memphis music history told from the inside. So um, those are the are, are the the interviews, but I intertwine music. Uh, when when say Reggie Young uh, was was uh, talking about Elvis recording Suspicious Minds, then I you know I would play Suspicious Minds and then come back into the interview. Um, so. Uh, that was a little bit unique, and and so uh, that may I had that uh, on the air uh, with uh, allmemphismusic dot com. Uh, so now I'm doing that as a podcast as well as that Memphis Music Radio Show, uh, which just uh, features some of the interviews, just little uh, nippets, and and uh, and then. The uh, along with the regular, you know, things that you would hear on a Memphis music show like uh, Al Green um, 
and Otis Redding, and then you hear uh, the things like ZZ Top and and uh, Neil Diamond and um, the other songs that you didn't realize uh, were recorded in Memphis. I'd love for our folks that are music fans to check out Memphis musicologist Mitch McCracken online and pick up a copy of his book and listen to the podcast. And that website to find you again, Mitch, is? Uh, Mitch McCracken dot org. Mitch org. Fair enough. Hey, Mitch, thanks for spending time with us today to talk Memphis music. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I really didn't know I knew all that. See, we pulled it all out of you. That's Mitch McCracken. Visit him online at MitchMcCracken.org. This is the Big Time Talker Podcast brought to you by our friends at SpeakerMatch.com. Burke Allen here. Hey, go out and make it a great day. <laughs>